As I read from God's word, the book of Revelation will continue there, beginning with verse 13 of chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. I'll read to the end of that chapter, verse 20. Here as I read from God's holy word. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then I looked. And behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out from the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we would ask... That you might, by your spirit, work your power among your people. Lord, that you would bring salvation. That you would utterly judge the nations through the work of Christ our Lord. And that your glory might be exhibited now and unto the end of the age the proclamation of your word. We pray all this in your name. Amen. You've seen this theme now. If you remember as we've moved through the book of Revelation that there are two peoples, two families of earth, two ways, the way of grace and the way of judgment, the way of peace, the way of misery. The angels have made it clear and their message is this, that The one who sits upon the throne is the one with whom you must make peace. And all of those who kiss the Son, who profess faith in Christ, who truly believe in him and seek salvation in him, bear the name given to them by the Father, the name of their Redeemer. But for all of those who deny Christ, who have rejected the faith, who have not believed upon Christ for salvation, They bear another name. There is no one among humanity that is not marked. All bear a name. The name of Christ or the name of that great dragon himself, Satan. As we see these parallel bodies, these two families, two nations, two groups, 
we find not only how they are categorized in this life, life before the throne, but also in the coming judgment of heaven and earth. In this text this morning, as it relates to the proclamation of the angels in verses 6 through 12, the effect of those proclamations among men in verses 13 through 20. And so this morning, as we look at our text, we find Christ, the one who sits upon the throne, who rides upon the clouds, bringing both mercy and judgment. These twin decrees related to his work upon the cross as judge of all the earth. In Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6, we read this. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. The day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore... My own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Here the prophet speaks of the judgment of God against those who reject the offer of mercy and the cross of Christ. And so this principle rises to the surface that we find throughout the scriptures that God will judge the nations through Christ and Christ will judge the nations through his cross. What does that then look like? Two points that I want to make this morning. The first, death, rest, and reward. Death, rest, and reward. And then secondly, the sickle of grace and wrath. The sickle of grace and wrath. Let's look at this first point. It comes from verse 13. Death, rest, and reward. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works. Follow them. First point is that the death of the saints is more glorious now than it has ever been. It is more glorious, and the promise of rest is more clear and confirmed to us now that Christ has come. In his commentary, and his writings on this particular section, David Chilton writes, By the work of Christ, heaven has been opened to God's people. The limbus patrum, the afterlife abode of the Old Testament, Faithful, the bosom of Abraham that is referred to in Luke 16, has been unlocked and its inhabitants freed. Death is now the entrance to communion and glory with Christ and the departed saints. 
I will not say much as it relates to this subject. There is much mystery that surrounds it. But prior to the resurrection of Christ, the saints of God awaited the resurrection of the Messiah to join him in heaven. And it was there upon the cross where he turns to the thief who professes faith in him. And he says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ has come to free the dead in him. Those who by faith were united to Christ Jesus. And this concept, this holding place of Abraham's bosom, Christ in his death went there and freed all of those who had prior to the coming of Christ's death and his resurrection awaited that day of liberty. As John writes here, he is speaking of that great glorious event and the implications now for you and for me. That now that Christ has been raised and sits upon the throne of heaven, we do not wait to join him there. For to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. This is what John says, those who die in the Lord from now on. Now, what this did not mean, that this place of waiting, Abraham's bosom, was a place of uncertainty as it related to eternal destiny. It was merely that place that the saints were held until the promised Messiah had come. And now that he has come, we will all meet him there. You and I, upon our death, now know because of Christ's resurrection with even greater hope and even greater comfort that that is our place of rest. We will go there. And this is good news. This is good news because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so the saints of God who die in Christ have now, in the most visible way possible, having seen Christ come and suffer, die, and be raised, confidence that they will join him one day. This is glorious. And that is why we speak of it as rest. We speak of it as comfort. That is our great eternal hope and promise. This is our blessing. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Christ's resurrection has done something. And it has made clear to us in our death that Rest is our future. Look at verse, the second part of verse 13. Yes, says the Spirit. Even the Spirit confirms to us in our lives. The Holy Spirit makes it known to us. Yes, this is true. Amen. I'm not telling you to say amen like Vody Balkum always does. <laughs> he always has to tell people to say amen. Have you ever noticed that? Just listen to him. Come on, guys. Can I get an amen? But that's what yes means. I testify to the validity of this. The Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, God himself, says, Amen. Yes, that they may rest from their labors. And not only do the people of God rest, but the things that we do in this life rest. That means they last. They are counted. Now, again, the significance of this must not be lost on us. That whatever we do that is according to God's word and for his glory, those things will not pass away. They will endure for all eternity. And this, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> and this is a promise that is a good promise for those who love him. 
Christ's death and resurrection makes it possible for us to live lives worth living. Now, what are those good works? Does it include folding clothes? Yes. Does it include doing dishes? Does it include a closing a contract? Yes. It includes all of those things in service to the kingdom. Digging ditches. Brushing your teeth. All of that is part of and belongs to the work of Christ's kingdom, what we call Christendom. The Bible knows nothing of the secular sacred distinction in this way. For all that is done according to God's will, that is what God says is good. You can't disobey in service of Christ. It must be obedient, but it cannot be according to God's law and for your glory. It must be according to the word and for the glory of God. And the only kinds of people that can do that are those in whom the Spirit bears witness and has made alive. And so you Christians, you who confess Christ, you have an opportunity to do a kind of labor that no one else on earth can do. You can invest in the kingdom that is to come labors that will never, ever, ever be wasted or forgotten. So when you do those small things like folding laundry and doing dishes and closing contracts and doing your homework, whatever it may be, and putting your laundry in the basket and not under your mattress, those kinds of things. Yes, I've seen the under part of our children's bedrooms, and that's where everything gets stuck. All that stuff that is not done in service to Christ is not enduring. But all these things we do in service of Christ, what we can say is this. Our labor matters. Our labor matters. And there is no one who pays a wage quite like Christ does. If I can put it that way. Young people, as you prepare to make a career, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is, what will compensation look like with the time that I have. And oftentimes what that looks like is it boils down to dollars per hour. And you have to make decisions about how many dollars do I need per hour of work in order to um, satisfy my own needs, food, shelter, clothing. And what does it require in order to support others in the same way? As it relates to the reward that is given to us by God, the ratio blows all human labors out of the water. There is an inheritance that awaits the saints that the scriptures speak, that outshines the sun, that is sevenfold in relationship to what we suffer. There is nothing as glorious, more worthwhile, than devoting your lives to the glory and honor of Christ. Now, do not hear me say the glory and honor of Christ and those labors as something you do when you're clocked out of your other job. It's not what you do in your free time. It is not your hobby. It is all that you do. And so what do you do? You dig ditches to the glory of God. You clean teeth to the glory of God. Everything you do, you do for the glory and honor of Christ. 
This is what the gospel does in the heart of a person. It transforms their labors because it gives them a beautiful vision of the future. People will say to you as you begin to enter the workforce, think about retirement. Save 20% of your income if you can for that day that when you retire so that when you're in an age where you'd like to stop doing one job and maybe doing another, or maybe you've had a very difficult, hard career to take some time off, you need to have something there to live on. We call that smart investing, wise, cunning investing. In the same way, we are to invest in the inheritance that is to come. What we are doing is we are living for the well done of the one who says to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. The kingdom is endeavoring to prompt us, or the king rather, endeavoring to prompt us to faithfulness by reminding us that our rest and our reward is coming. It is coming. It will follow us. And so our comfort is not only found in freedom from sin, but for glory in the labors that we do in the service of Christ that will bring about the furthering of his kingdom. And that is why this verse is connected to what is to come. Now, what we find, second point, the sickle of grace and wrath, is a symbolic, heavenly expansion of the principle of which Jesus speaks in John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is the chapter that contains Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well and then his disciples as he is preparing them to go into the harvest and to labor. And those two incidents are related to one another. Jesus is proclaiming the nature in which all men will come to him, how people will be gathered. And then he speaks to his disciples about the exercise of gathering and who is actually out there to be gathered. Where we gather them to, that they are to be gathered, and how they are to be gathered. And so in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, Jesus says, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? He's speaking there in natural terms. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Verses 14, 15, and 16 speak of the reaping of the harvest of the saints from a glorious, transcendent, cosmic perspective. And so in the first part of this point two, we find the reaper, who is Christ, and the reaping. In a moment, we'll look at the reaper and the reaping of the grapes. But here we see the harvest. The harvest of those whom Christ has said already is white, It's ready to be brought in. And so beginning in verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Who is this? We know this already. This is code for the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And he has on his head a golden crown and a sharp sickle. 
And another angel came out from the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he, that is Jesus, who sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, here is Christ. He has the implement by which to bring in the harvest, but it is through the angelic proclamation that comes forth from the temple. Now, here, who is the temple? Well, we go to Ezekiel 47. In Ezekiel 47, there is water that is issuing forth from the temple. That water is the Holy Spirit. And if you remember many months ago, about a year ago, I preached from Ezekiel 47 as a kind of preface to the book of Revelation. And there we see that the temple is the saints. It is the corporate body of Christ. It is the Catholic Church, small c Catholic. The angel comes forth from the church because it is the church that pleads, O Lord of the harvest, bring in the sheaves. And so the church says to Christ, bring in the harvest. And what does Christ do? He brings in the harvest. If there is a text that emphasizes the importance of the saints asking God for things, it is here. For that is one of the missions of the church. The mission of the church is to work the harvest, but how can the harvest be worked if the one who holds the sickle does not take it to the harvest? We must say to Christ, Christ, bring in the harvest. So every Sunday morning when we gather for worship, your pastor on behalf of this church and behalf of the kingdom says to the Lord of the harvest, bring your sickle to bear on the sheaves of the earth. And this is a symbolic but a real spiritual act by which Christ through the ministry of the church, through word and prayer and sacrament is bringing into the storehouse the harvest. You know what the word synagogue means? In fact, the pattern of synagogue worship is the pattern that we have for Presbyterian polity and worship. It is the example for the local church. Synagogue just means to be gathered, to assemble. We are asking that Christ would bring into the synagogue, to his holy church, to the cathedral of Christendom, all of those whom Christ has before the foundations of the world were made, chosen in him by the Father to be brought in. And Christ will do this. And it's throughout all the earth. And so the angel here isn't commanding Christ. The angel is here on behalf of Christ, delivering to him the message from the church, Christ, Lord Jesus. There are 250,000 people in Gaston County. Bring in the harvest of Gaston County. And obviously every county, every land, every tribe, every tongue, nation, and peoples. And this is why Christ in Matthew 9 commands us as he was moved in compassion. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Christ will reap according to his work of redemption. 
of the mediation that he has accomplished. And that is what we find. That the gospel that is proclaimed in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 14 is effectual in verses 14 through 16 to bring about the whole harvest. Now, when will that harvest have been subsided? When will it conclude? I have no idea. But I know this, and I believe it with all of my heart, that there will be greater, there is a greater harvest of the saints than there is a gathering of the lost in judgment. That the glory of the reaping of mercy and the power of Christ's resurrection is greater than any power on earth. And here we find the division. That those who respond to the gospel by faith are those who will be brought in. They are the sheep. They are the wheat. They are not the tares or the goats. They are the ones who bear the name of Christ. Christ's sickle is precise in relationship to his father's electing decrees. And no one, no one will be left I've had a week or more to deal with this text. And every time I get to the point where I preach it, it always results in this sort of climactic experience with the text. And so I'm very excited, as you can tell, as I am every Sunday, perhaps a little too excited. I want you to get excited about this as it relates to the doctrine of missions. It's, the word is missiology. That the reason that we go forth into the world and we pray as we move into the world is because Christ isn't on the earth. That the one with the sickle is upon the clouds. This position of authority is not only an explanation of his power, but of his wisdom and the keeping of promises. His ability to keep the promises that he has made. He is Lord of the harvest. And he is bringing into the harvest those who belong to him. This is the reaper and the reaping. And then we see the reaper and the winepress. Just as Christ will bring the sickle to redeem. As we sing, right? Psalm 66, there are those who are carried through the sea and delivered. And then there are those who are carried not through the, they are not carried through the sea and they are judged. Another angel, verse 17, comes out of that same temple. What is this? What did I say it was in verse 14? It is the prayers of the saints. It is the mission and work of the church. In the same way, the church prays to Christ not only for grace and mercy, but as the ministry of the church goes forth into the world, what is the other result? Judgment. Now, I would love for every time I preach... There are those who are brought into the kingdom favorably. That they know the mercy of Christ. That they lay hold of Christ by repentance and faith. And they are therefore saved. But what of those who when they hear Christ proclaim. Stop up their ears and they shut their eyes and they say no. In the same way the angel goes forth to the same one. Christ himself with the same sickle, as it were, his sovereign acts carried out upon the earth, not here to mercy, 
but rather to judgment. Now this is a symbolic, apocalyptic representation of what Paul speaks of in Romans 11. Beginning in verse 19, Paul says, You will say then, Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they, that is the Jews, were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, that is the Jews, the Old Testament people of God, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, severity but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. Now, Romans 11 is a chapter devoted to the spiritual fate of Israel because they did not keep covenant with God through Christ Jesus. Because they rejected the Messiah, they who were once visibly grafted in to the vine, the root, that is Christ, have now been cast off and flung into the fire. Why? Because they rejected Christ. That is how any and all are cast off. And so it's Christ is bringing in the nations. He is bringing them in either to mercy into the storehouse that stands the household of faith or the winepress of God. Now, in Israel chapter 7, the prophet speaks to Jerusalem directly. And this is what he says of the coming judgment if they do not repent. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. Isaiah is warning the Jews hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, if you do not repent, I will start over, not with you, but with another branch. This is covenantal judgment. All that Christ does is covenantal in nature which is why we find the language of covenant and the language of Scripture repeated over and over again. And so there will be some who are gathered for salvation or in salvation, and then there are those who are gathered in judgment. And here, John uses the language of vine and of grape because it is biblical language. The church understands this language. The old Church, the the early New Testament church, when I say old, I mean in relation to us, the New Testament church understood this language. It is the language of covenant cast off, of being cast off. And so another angel comes out and he says, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Ripe for what? Not for joy, not for singing, not for gladness. These are wild grapes, and they have no use other than to what? To be trampled. This is what Isaiah spoke of when I read at the beginning of this sermon. It is a harsh, brutal rebuke, and it's probably a difficult introduction to any sermon. (laughs) 
It is a warning. It is a description of God's judgment. It is a description of Christ in his garments, in his robe, and he is walking through the winepress, and his garments are stained with the condemnation of those whom he has trampled. And in Isaiah 63, it is the covenantal language of wine. In Revelation 14, it is the symbolic expression of blood. It's harsher language, isn't it? Why? Because they did not heed the warning. And now Christ speaks of the judgment that is to come. It is a description of the downfall of Jerusalem. Now of this, another commentator named Stuart Russell speaks and he writes, This is terrible in symbol and almost literal in its historic truth. It was a people, that is the Jewish people of Jerusalem, that was trampled in the fury of divine wrath. Where was there ever such a sea of blood as was shed in the exterminating war of Vespasian and Titus? The carnage, as related by Josephus, exceeds all that that is recorded in the annals of warfare. If we had not the testimony of an eyewitness who certainly could have no interest in exaggerating the ruin of his people or defaming their character, that is Josephus, it would scarcely be possible to believe that these symbols were not overcharged. But no one can read the tragic story without recognizing that there were there was a that the very transactions that are here written in symbol and which amply to attest the reality and truth of the prophecy. And what is he speaking of? Look at verse 20. The winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1600 furlongs. That is blood that rises to the bridle of a horse in a very large region. This is God's judgment expressed in great terms. And look at where it's done. Outside the city. Where was Christ taken? This is not accidental language. This is covenantal language. Christ did not die in the city of Jerusalem. When the scapegoat offering for Israel was offered, it was required that that animal be killed and sacrificed outside the confines of the tribes, carried outside the camp. Why? Because it was accursed. Christ was accursed. And so he was led out of the city to that hill called the Skull, and there cursed upon the cross for those who come to him and in him are relieved of the curse. They find salvation from the curse. But for all those who deny and reject the cursed one, Christ, through whom we are reconciled to the Father, they are carried outside the city and there they bear the wrath of God. We will never understand the extraordinary depths and majesty and glory of the grace of God if we do not understand the depths and the glory and the terror of God's judgment. And I'm going to tell you, 
In the West, in the church, we have no appetite for the judgment of God. How then can we understand his grace? We cannot. And so Revelation is for us, like all of Scripture, a necessary corrective to cheap grace to an improper perspective because it is Christ that is doing both of these things. The lordship of Christ is manifested both in grace and in judgment. And so that should prompt in us who love Christ rejoicing. For we have been counted righteous through Christ and we have no fear of the judgment that is to come. But there is still, I would imagine in your mind and in mine, a holy fear and trembling that goes, whew, that could have been me. And praise God it was not me. And if you do not see the beauty of grace and the terror of judgment, you will never be moved to serve the one who brings both. Christ manifests his kingdom in both of these ways. And so the heart of the gospel is what? What we found in verse 6. It brings it back, or really verse 7. Fear God and give him glory. For the hour of judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. That call to salvation, its urgency, its necessity is amplified by grace and judgment seen here in verses 14 through 16 and 17 through 20. This is what we are called to take to the world. There is good news and there is bad news. The storm is coming. Find salvation in Christ. Let's pray.